So if you grab your sermon insert, you see that uh, I've got a title up there, which is really not a title just for this particular message as we begin chapter 12, but really for this next section of the letter, the last of the major sections of this wonderful book that Paul wrote so long ago that still has just as much application for us today. You notice it is application. That's the section. Application, how I practice God's righteousness. Now, perhaps you that have been here, you'll remember that there's these sections that we've gone through as Paul is laying out God's beautiful, wonderful, marvelous plan of salvation. Began with him stating the theme of the letter as being that he's not ashamed of the gospel. That's what this letter is about, the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the, the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God or how to have a right relationship with God is revealed from faith to faith. And then the first major section was an explanation of why we need God's righteousness. It was because of this word, condemnation. Condemnation, that was chapter 1, 18, all the way through 320. We stood condemned before God as sinners. We're born that way. We're born sinners, not saints. And we deserve God's holy wrath for our sin. The second major section explained how we could get a right relationship with God. Started in, in chapter 3 and verse 21 and goes through chapter 5 and 21. And that is with one word, justification. Justification does not mean as though I'd never sinned. It means that God declares me righteous in spite of the fact that I have sinned. And he does so because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe in in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have peace with God through him. The third major section was chapter six through eight, and it's one word sums that up. It's the word sanctification. That word simply means this. It means to be set apart from sin unto God to be used for his glory and purposes. And those three chapters explains that, that we've been set free from the penalty and power of sin, Chapter 6, and we've been set free from the judgment and guilt of the law. Chapter 7, and we've been made right with God, and the Holy Spirit has come into us. The law of the Spirit of life has entered in us. In other words, the Holy Spirit indwells those that put their faith in Christ, and consequently they can then live out the righteous requirements of the law, which they could not do beforehand. He had ended that section with a wonderful statement about how nothing, nothing, no created thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The next major section was what we just finished last week, chapters 9 through uh, most of 11, except for the last few verses, which was summed up in the word vindication, vindication, and that is Paul's explanation, vindicating God in his dealings with the Jews and the Gentiles. He basically said this in, in chapter 9, that salvation was never intended for every Jew or every Gentile. God never intended it that way, but rather those that he chose. Divine, sovereign election. God chooses and then shows mercy to some and he hardens others. And that was a hard message, wasn't it? Chapter 9. Chapter 10 was like, ah, but the other side of the coin is no one would be justified in God's eyes if they don't believe, if they don't exercise faith in Christ. So human responsibility is there. Even though God is sovereign in salvation, humans are responsible to believe. And if they don't believe, then they will not be saved. They will not be right in the eyes of God. And at the very end of Chapter 11, we saw a beautiful doxology last week where, where Paul lays out how great God is, how deep he is in his riches and wisdom and knowledge that his judgments are unfathomable and his, his, uh, his ways are inscrutable and that no one can ever understand God completely. 
He knows everything. We don't. So we, we can never know him completely, and at least until we get into his presence. And, and the wisdom of God is beyond our comprehension as well. It's, it's like, who, is, who has God ever gone to to seek counsel? Uh, no one, right? God doesn't need to go to anyone for counsel. He's got all the wisdom there is. And his riches, and not riches of material wealth, but the riches of his grace and mercy. And God will never be a debtor to anyone. No one can ever put God in a position where God owes them salvation or anything else. Because he owns it all, even the material stuff. And he first gives to us that we should repay him. Although we know we can never repay him enough to earn salvation, it's a gift, right? So to him uh, or from him and to him and through him are all things, right? All to his glory and honor. So we've come to this last major section of Paul's epistle in chapter 12. That's going to run from chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through chapter 15 and verse 13. And what he's doing in this section is explaining through a series of exhortations how we are to live out the righteousness of God, how we are to practice the righteousness of God, how it should impact us so that we live to his glory because of the wonderful salvation that he has given us through the truth of the gospel. And Paul had spent a lot of time, you know, going through the theological basis of the the gospel, all those things that we just kind of reviewed. And and, and now he comes and says, this is my explanation to you, saints, that, uh, that you need to live up just what Pastor Tom was talking about. You need to live up to what God has done for you. You need to be committed to him. So Paul's explanation of how sinful people can be right with God, that's been concluded, and, 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 but there's still more to be said. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that he says more. Once sinful people have been brought into a right relationship with God, they need to understand what God expects of them as his children because of their relationship through faith and the salvation that he's given them. The fact that a person has been justified by faith in Christ should impact each and every one of them, how they respond in the concrete situation, situations and circumstances of life. And that's what this last main section is about. It's designed to instruct us and encourage us as believers as to how we are to live in light of our salvation. The first section, verses 1 and 2, which I'm going to read in a moment, is summed up this way. It is talking about the believer's dedication and devotion to God. So if you're filling in your insert, that's what you want to put in those two blanks. The believer's dedication and devotion to God. So let me read those two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, what believers must understand is that they should fully dedicate themselves, their lives, to God. And these first two verses are really a prelude to what he's going to talk about. So, this is... uh, not a, not a grammatical thing. It's not a grammatical structure, but it is the structure that Paul's going to use in this section. He gives us first a general major principle, verses 1 and 2, our dedication and devotion to God. Everything that will follow from verse 3 of chapter 12 all the way through chapter 15 and verse 13 is him laying out examples of believers being dedicated and devoted to God. So in chapter 12, verse 3 through 8, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts and the use 
of the gifts that God gives us to live in a way that will bring him glory. And in chapter 12, verses 9 through the end of that chapter, he addresses interpersonal relationships and how we are to handle uh, even those that are spiteful towards us, that pay, you know, uh, are evil to us. And he tells them, is, don't repay evil for evil, but you know, let, leave room for the wrath of God. God can take care of that. He's big enough. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So interpersonal relationships. Then in chapter 13, you know, their dedication, devotion to God will be seen in their willingness to submit to governing authorities. Hear that? Submit to governing authorities. And that includes paying taxes. They'll talk about that. And then right almost seamlessly he flows into a debt that we owe, not to government to pay our taxes only, but to one another. And the only debt we really have to one another is to love one another. And if we do that, we fulfill the whole law. In chapter 14, all the way through chapter 15 and verse 13, he is addressing kind of one major issue where you can see whether you are dedicated and devoted to God. And that too is dealing with interpersonal relationships, but it specifically addresses when there is conflict in conviction, in conviction. Weaker and stronger brothers he will talk about. One person thinks this is right and good and will honor God. And another person says, no, I think it's this. How do you deal with that kind of thing? He goes on and on and on about that in a long section. I wonder why he takes so much time to address that. It is because, right? It is because that is so common among believers to fight over our personal convictions. Not over what is truth revealed by God, but our personal convictions about truth. There's a difference. Conviction isn't the same thing as truth. So, I remember a great sermon that Greg preached to us where he shared that information, the difference between truth and conviction and, and so on. So, here we are at the very beginning. By the way, we're only going to cover one verse today. Just verse 1. We're not going to get to verse 2. I, I kind of feel like this is one of those scratch and sniff cards. <laughs> you know, we're going to scratch the surface a little bit of, of application, and we're going to take a sniff of it and get a good whiff of what it means to be dedicated and devoted to God or to be committed to God with the, fact, with the result that our, our lives are such that we worship Him in everything that we do. So these two verses, even though we're only covering uh, verse 1 today, they're prelude again to the, with an overarching principle that will then be seen to be worked out in the concrete situations of life as we go through the rest of this section. And the point that he's going to be making is that if we're not dedicating ourselves entirely to God because of his mercy shown us, we'll fail to live up to the responsibilities that he's given us in the use of our gifts and how we in, interact with other people, including those that hate us and abuse us and so on. Uh, we'll fail to live up to his, uh, the requirements that we have to obey and submit to governing authorities and paying taxes. And, uh, and we will fail to be people who owe, uh, fulfilled this one debt that we have to love one another and love other people more than we love ourselves. And, and we'll fail to, you know, gracefully and humbly uh, deal with those that have different personal convictions as a result of their study of the scripture. So I don't want to fail on that. Hopefully you don't either. So that's what he's going to be talking about. A majority of Bible students recognize these two verses, actually, as one of the most definitive statements on the subject of dedication or commitment found in the Word of God. And I would tell you, it is that. It is that. However, we'll miss something very important if we don't see the relationship between dedication and devotion. Dedication and devotion. Or you could put it in the terms of between commitment and worship. We have to see 
the distinction there. Th these two topics are inseparable in these verses, and we'll see that a life of total commitment to God is generated by the worth or the value that we place on the person of God, who he is, and what he's done for us in giving us salvation. And we'll also observe that a person who is totally committed to God will live a life of worship. And of course, we'll need to understand what that is, but we'll see that. And so there's a direct link between being dedicated to God and being devoted to his service, or being committed to God and living a life of worship. So let's begin at the beginning, shall we? <laughs> and again, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So you know the rule, right? Every time you see a therefore, you stop and see what it's there for. That's right. That's right. That's a, a little quip, but it's, it's a good reminder. When you see a therefore, it's making a connection. So Paul is not going in, in this long section. He's not going to lay out an arbitrary list of duties for believers in Christ to fulfill, but those that are founded or based upon what God has done for them in Christ. Get this? This is, this is huge. The implication is that Christian ethics, they're based on and motivated by uh, a proper view of God's saving work. Paul's establishing a connection between what he will reveal in the, this last major section of the letter with his teaching that he's already laid out in the first 11 chapters. And so he gives them an appeal that's based upon chapters 1 through 11, an appeal from a brother. Did you notice that? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, right? Brothers. And we could say sisters as well. He's not making it just a male thing. I appeal to you, he says. He sets the tone for what is going to happen, not only in these two verses, but what is going to take place in the rest of this section on how we are to apply God's righteousness to our lives. So Paul appeals, or depending on your version that you hold in your hands or you're looking at in your digital device or you read on a regular basis. Paul appeals or he exhorts or he urges or he beseeches his readers from this point rather than strictly giving them more teaching or instruction. The verb appeal that he uses here comes from a particular Greek word, very common Greek word used in the New Testament. Parakleto, if it's a, if it's a noun, it's prayer. Parakletos, uh, and you don't necessarily need to remember, but but it's easy words to remember because when you think of a parakletos, we get the English word paraclete from it, and you might understand what a paraclete is, one who comes alongside to give you assistance. An advocate, a lawyer, is a paraclete. He is an advocate for someone in a judicial setting. So that's the verb that he uses here, and it, it has that meaning, to be called alongside or to summon, to exhort, to urge, to encourage, or even to comfort. In fact, the way that word is in its noun form is often referred to in the Gospel of John in reference to the Holy Spirit. If you read in your New Testaments, it'll say, and I'm going to go away, but the Father will send you another comforter. It's that same root word, parakletos. He'll send you a comforter. But it could have just as well said one who will come alongside of you or one who will exhort you or encourage you or will command you or will urge you the Spirit does all those things. And that's the meaning of this word. He, he is stressing that even though this word has a, a, a broad number of meanings, the force of it in this passage is on exhortation or command. He's exhorting or commanding them, even though it's not written as uh, an imperative grammatically. So this is a strong appeal for, by the apostle for Christians to live in accordance with what God has done for them. Now, I'm going to take you just on a, through a few other passages to demonstrate this is common 
commonly used by Paul. So go over to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. You don't have these references uh, done, do you, Joel? You will. Okay. Ephesians 4, 1. Well, I'm going to have to turn my Bible to read them to you. So Ephesians 4, 1 says, I therefore, uh, a prisoner of the, uh, for the Lord, urge you, there's that word, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. Because of what God has done for you, I'm urging you to walk in a way that corresponds to that, right? So go over to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your life be worthy. Let it show the merit of the, the gospel of Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then in chapter 2 and verse 6, he, he says it again, therefore, of Colossians, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Let your life be in a, lived in accordance with what God has done for you. Let it be worthy of the calling. And then one more, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. You notice the three? Exhorted, encouraged, charged. You know, he wants the point to get made. Charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So that's what Paul's doing in this whole section. He's urging the believers, those who have been justified by their faith in Christ and have, have escaped the condemnation that they rightly deserve as sinners and now are seen as God's forgiven saints. He's urging them, live your life in accordance with what God has done for you. And that brings us to the next point and that, that Paul's making, and that has to do with mercy. So he makes it clear, we're a debtor to mercy. There's an old hymn title, a debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing, of covenant mercy. God has shown us mercy. We saw that in chapter 9, that design, uh, divine sovereign election is founded on the mercy of God, not his justice. And here Paul is stressing that as well. And so before Paul actually gives the content of his first of many exhortations, this being a primary one and the rest that follow will be coming out of that, but before he gives the content of the exhortation, he states the basis for the exhortation, doesn't he? He's going to give us the content in a moment here in this verse and then verse 2 next week as we cover that. But he says, here's the basis for it. What is the basis? The mercies of God. Amen. And he appeals to the brothers by the mercy of God. So though what he uh, says carries the weight of one who is an apostle giving them the Lord's command, he approaches them. I, I want you to notice this. He approaches them as a fellow member of God's family. He doesn't say here, I urge you as church members who are under my authority as an apostle of the Lord. No, he urges them as a brother in Christ. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, he, what he has to say in this entire section, while it does carry the weight of an apostle, he, he's approaching is like, I, this is brother to brother, brother to sister. This is a family talk that we're going to be having, how to live to the glory of God. So what he has to say in this section is applicable only to those, only to those who are members of God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. Did you get that? We shouldn't expect those that are not members of God's family to live like they are. They can't. So what he's urging here is to those who are children of God. 
To others, you know what this will seem like? This whole section, it will seem like just another set of rules or another set of laws to keep. Like, and if you don't keep the rules or don't keep the laws, you're going to end up feeling like a failure and guilty and shame. Back to chapter 7, what the law produced, right? Guilt and shame. And, and, and why, even, why even give it a try? Because I could never do it. But rather, this is not a list of rules that he's going to give us, but it is a list of responsibilities for those who have a right relationship with God because of faith in Christ. And, and they've come to to see that a proper response to God's grace and mercy is to live in a way that brings him honor, to bring him glory. I, I love what Calvin uh, wrote on the, the phrase, the mercies of God. Listen to this. He says, Paul teaches that believers, uh, teaches believers that people will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy shown them. I like that. The mercies of God that Paul's referring to, of course, in this, uh, in this verse, I urge you on the basis of the mercies of God are of the things that we've already talked about in chapters 1 through 11. So, you know, the people... The fact that God does not always exercise the full of extent of his wrath on sinners, you know, who are condemned, is because he's merciful. He doesn't always exercise the full extent of his wrath. He, he forgives. The fact that uh, people don't have to be obediently fulfilling the law to uh, attain a right relationship with God is the mercy of God. That people are free from the penalty and power of sin and the judgment and guilt of the law being lawbreakers is the mercy of God. Having the Spirit of God indwelling us is the mercy of God. The Jews and the Gentiles being joined together as fellow heirs of God is His mercy. Did you get that? I urge you based on the mercies of God. All those mercies that I, he says that I've covered from chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 11. Now think with me. It was typical for pagan worshipers, and, and even in the mind of most Jews who were rejecting the gospel, to offer sacrifices to obtain mercy from their God or their God's. Whereas Paul makes it clear that the basis of believers being dedicated or committed uh, is not to receive mercy because they already have received mercy. Pastor Tom already mentioned that earlier as we were remembering the Lord as well. What we do in our commitment to the Lord is based on what he's already given us, not because what we want to receive from him. It's a response so it's a response to what he's done, not us seeking to require something of him. Next, Paul says, through the grammar that are in these two verses, that uh, true believers are to present their bodies as a sacrifice to God. He uses grammar that emphasizes that this is a decisive act of the will. A decisive act of the will. If you're filling in your insert, there you go. So he's saying this is the choice that you make as a child of God, as a child of God, that at some point in time you're going to make this decision and it will shape the way that you live from then on. Did you get that? This is a decision, a decisive act of the will that you make that will shape the way that you live from then on. It's, it's a decision that we make to commit our entire being to God at a point in time, not to commit a little here and a little there as time goes along. I mean, God wants all of us, and he wants all of us now. And when I say all of us, I mean he wants all of me individually, and he wants all of every believer individually now. 
not, not a little over, you know, over time. Make this decision. The, the, the grammar, the, act, uh, the aorist active infinitive stresses that. It's a point in time thing, this decision. So while we can't uh, fulfill all the exhortations that are, are, he's going to lay out and the many that are found in his other epistles or other places in the Bible, we'll see you know, that at a point in time we make this decision and that will change the way that we live from then on and we will begin to live out these things. We'll begin to use our gifts the way that he wants us to. We'll interact with people the way that we should, even in tough situations. We'll, we'll learn that we need to submit to government and we'll do that with a good heart instead of a griping spirit. And we'll, we'll pay our taxes in the same way and we'll will love one another, not because like, I've got to love him. I, I really don't want to, but I got to, you know, because God said that. No, no, we'll do it because we realize we've been loved by God and he wants us to love people like he loved us. And, and so you make this decision, then you, over time, you work out those things in your life. It's kind of like getting married. I, I married my wife, she's sitting right back there, the lovely creature that she is. I married her 50 years ago, and uh, since then I've tried very hard, she has to, to live up to the commitment that I made and she made on December 5, 1972. And we haven't needed to get remarried over and over and over again. It's like every time you know, we go through a hard time, I guess we better get married again. No, we haven't needed to do that. We, we, what we have needed to do is live in accordance with the commitment that we made to one another on December 5, 1972, when we said, I do. I, I, and when we did that, I didn't you know, say to her that she could have a part of me at that time, and she could get other parts of me as time would go along. The importance of this point is that God is calling us to make a commitment to him that's going to affect the way that we live the rest of our life. And it's, it's not saying that we will not fail God at times any more than my commitment to my wife didn't mean that I wouldn't fail her at times uh, to be the husband, you know, that I should be. However, making that commitment to my wife when I did is, serves as a constant reminder, constant reminder that I am to live in a way that honors her as my wife. I, this ring is a reminder to me of that commitment that I made. You know, I'm, I'm not taking that off. Well, I'll take it off with him, I'll wash my hands. I used to take it off when I would work as a painter and didn't want to ruin it. But other than that, I wear that because I want people to know I, I, I'm committed. I'm married, I'm committed. and. What Paul is basically saying is that that's what we do when we trust in Christ. And, and then, then we realize God has done so much for me. He's been so merciful to me. I need to my, commit my life to him. I need to dedicate my life to, be, to him and, and be devoted to him. Here's a question. Why do you suppose that so many people today don't want to get married? Or... Or, you know, they only want to live together. Or it's like, why is that? That's very, very common nowadays. At least part of the reason is because they don't want to make a commitment. They don't want to make that commitment for life to someone. Now, it could be that they're just fearful that it won't work out and they don't want to go through the, the pain of divorce. Wonderfully, mercifully, our relationship with God is permanent. It's permanent. If we've trusted in Christ, we can't be divorced from him. He won't divorce us, and we can't divorce him. And what he wants from us, consequently, is a total commitment of our lives, an act of the will where we de dedicate ourselves to God, will serve as a constant reminder to us that we should live in a way that brings him glory, honors him. And so the commitment that Paul is speaking about is a decisive act of the will where we dedicate our entire being to God and then live in light of that commitment every day thereafter. And then, in the 
content of his appeal, he speaks in terms of the language of sacrifice, the language of sacrifice. Paul appeals to the brothers that they, they present their bodies as a sacrifice to God. A sacrifice, he says, that is living and holy and acceptable or well-pleasing to him. You know, the, the language of sacrifice would have impacted the, the people that Paul originally wrote to much more than it does modern people. Why? Well, because sacrifice, animal sacrifice, was known by all cultures during that time. All, all pagan or Jewish, didn't matter. First century people were very accustomed to offering animals in worship of their gods. They would have stood by their altars, the altar of their gods, and, and watched as an animal was killed in a ritualistic manner. And his blood would be drained and certain parts of his body, its body would be cut off and would be burned on the altar with flames rising up word as they worshiped their deities. Very, very common in that culture. It's not so much today. I mean, there are people that still sacrifice animals, but it's not the common thing. So the difference between what Paul says in our text and that typical animal sacrifice that they would have known about, it's, it's striking. First of all, it's striking because the human body that we present to God is not to be slain. It doesn't say kill yourself, right? Present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, not as a slain sacrifice. Also, we are to offer our own bodies as a sacrifice rather than offering up something else, an animal or you know, maybe it's finances or whatever people may think, you know, giving to God as a sacrifice. So by referring to the body, Paul does not simply mean our flesh and bones, but rather the totality of our being. When he says, mm, present your bodies to God as a sacrifice, he's referring to our whole being. And, and I think that the reason that he uses the term body is because the body is the vehicle by where so much sin is carried out. And you've got you to stop living that way. So present your body as a living, holy, not sinful, holy sacrifice that it's well-pleasing or acceptable to God. Our, our bodies should not be used in a sinful way, is what he's saying. Rather, they should be presented to God as a sacrifice to be used by Him for His glory and purposes. That's what sanctification was all about, being set apart from sin. Not only from the penalty of it, but the power of it. And set apart unto him to be used by him for his glory and purposes. So I think that the, the term bodies is interesting. And you may think that it's an odd thing, a strange thing that God would want your body. I mean, you can hardly stand it yourself at times, right? I mean, it has health issues. It, it's too out of shape. The older we get, the, we, we say that a lot. I'm so out of shape. It's so old. I wouldn't say this in a young kid's Sunday school class, but most of us here are so old. At least that's what we're told. You know, it has B.O., bad breath. It snores. It, it has, it's like my wife, I'll say to my wife, did I, did I drive you out of bed last night? Well, you were snoring some. That's what the, this body does. It, you know, does that. It snores. And, uh, you know, it, it has bad back or bad knees. I guess I'm talking about myself here. Or, or some other part that is giving you fits, right? It's like, listen, we just think of it. The, the, my body is nothing but a big painful problem. Why would God want your body? Well, it's, it's important to understand where Paul's coming from as he writes this. In Greek philosophy, there had been a deprecation of the body, a looking down on the body. The ideal in Greek philosophy was to be free of the body, to be free of it and its degrading influences. And so there was the belief, common belief, that the body, because it was material, was evil. On the other hand, the spirit, which is immaterial, was good. And this 
philosophical view is what is known as dualism. Dualism, and it is decidedly opposite of what Paul is saying, what is true biblical theology. Listen, let me give you a, just one uh, reference that you know, Paul besides here that make, makes this clear. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for we were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's right. Your body matters. And the context of 1 Corinthians 6 is there were some believers that were actually still going to pagan temples and participate in, in pagan feasts to pagan gods. And, and, and they were engaging also, he says, in sexual immorality with temple prostitutes. And he's saying, no, 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 not as a believer. Your body matters to God. Your body matters. So what Paul is doing by telling us to present our bodies is, you know, God emphasizing to us that he wants a commitment of the entire person, not just a part of us. Uh, from the, the book, The Land of Fantasy, there's a story that illustrates the point Paul's making. Some of you have probably heard this comical story, but it makes the point. The story goes like this. A certain hen, you know, chicken, hen and a pig went for a walk one day together. And as they were passing a church, they noticed the coming week's sermon title was on the outdoor sign. And the sermon title was, How Can We Help the Poor? How Can We Help the Poor? And, they, you know, they, they're just walking along for a few moments. And, and then the hen says, I know how we can help the poor. We can provide them a bacon and eggs breakfast. And the pig immediately protested, saying, for you, such, such would just be a contribution. <laughs> but for me, that would be a total commitment. You get that. Yeah, kind of comical, but it makes the point. Paul is carefully describing what kind of sacrifice that God wants from us. And it's a total thing. A total thing he wants all of us. Now, it goes on to say, uh, you know, a, a sacrifice, living, holy, and well-pleasing. Now, several Bible versions speak of living sacrifices qualified by holy and pleasing, or holy and acceptable. In the NAS, New American Standard, has uh, living and holy sacrifice and qualifies that with the word acceptable. But the Greek text speaks of present your bodies as a sacrifice. And then that is further explained by the qualifiers, living, holy, and acceptable, or pleasing to God. So consider a living sacrifice. God doesn't want dead sacrifices. He wants living ones. He calls us to live for him. And this living sacrifice, we can do it because he's given us new life. We came alive through the law of the spirit of life that did away with the law of sin and death through the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And someone has well said at one point that the problem with living sacrifices is that they want to crawl off the altar. Put them up there, get on the altar. It's like, oh, no, I don't really like this. I'm going to walk away from that. And that re reminded me of a story that I heard about a young man who had went to a youth retreat. At the end of the retreat, the young man was sharing his feelings about the week, and, and, and he, he asked his peers to raise their hand if they were prepared to die for Jesus if necessary. And hands were raised throughout the room. And then the young man said, now raise your hands if you're prepared to live for Jesus. We're to be living sacrifices, not dead ones. Also, a holy sacrifice. And it is a holy sacrifice in the sense that we are called to live in accordance with God's holy character. Uh, we read in Leviticus, and then Peter quotes it himself in his epistle, if you call me father, then be holy, because I am holy. So we are to be sanctified or set apart from sin and unto God to be used for his glory and purposes. And this takes us setting aside 
old activities and actions that were common to us as an old person, an old self, that Paul talked about in Romans 6. We read in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness or sanctification to completion in the fear of God. Do you notice he says of body and spirit? Your body matters. It's not just what's inside you. Your body matters, body and spirit. You want to bring sanctification to completion, to perfection, to what it should be in the fear of God. So it was not uncommon, actually, in Paul's day for unbelievers to offer themselves in all kinds of immoral acts to their false gods. I already mentioned temple prostitutes. In Corinth, at the temple of Aphrodite, and there were a large number of women who worshipped and served their God through being temple prostitutes. And then the worshipers would come in and be sexually immoral with them. Believers are called to a commitment where we live in purity and holiness and godliness. And then he says, an acceptable sacrifice or a well-pleasing sacrifice. And that brings to mind, at least to my mind, the kinds of sacrifice offered in the Old Testament that had to meet specific qualifications. If you've read or you, like I've just finished reading through Numbers and I'm going to be going on into Deuteronomy. So I've read through Exodus and Leviticus already where all the descriptions of all the sacrifices and the types and so on were all listed. And uh, if you read through that, you'll find that you couldn't, you couldn't sacrifice a lame or a sick animal. It had to be the best animal. It had to be spotless uh, and without any defect. Couldn't be like, well, I guess I'll make a sacrifice to God, but I'll give the one that doesn't really matter to me because it's lame. No, no, God wants our best. And in our present text, being an acceptable or well-pleasing sacrifice, it actually is referring to our desire to please God in all that we do. Huh, that just reminds me of Jesus, who in John chapter 8 and verse 29 says, I always do those things that are pleasing to him, meaning to the Father. So, wow, this is a pretty powerful, important exhortation, isn't it? But we're not at the end of it. Just a couple minutes to, to go and we will be. So at the end of verse 1 we see the connection between commitment and worship, between dedication and devotion. So Paul indicates that the decisive act of our will to commit ourselves to God and to be a living, holy, and pleasing sacrifice should be understood this way as spiritual worship. Some translations have as spiritual service of worship. Others have as your rash, uh, reasonable service. So think of this phrase in light of what we've already seen regarding sacrifice. To Jews and Gentiles alike, offering an animal for sacrifice, what was that? It was an act of worship, right? An act of worship for them. And likewise, as you read through the Old Testament and you find out all the regulations about sacrifices, what you were really reading is about regulations about worship of the one true and living God. So a good working definition of the word worship. Not the one that's used in our text, but the general idea of worship, what it is. A good description is this, to ascribe to someone their worth or their value. So I could say, well, I just worship my wife. I'm not worshiping her as God, but she has great worth or value to me. She's the one woman that you know, I, I'm committed to living my life with. I mean, has great worth to me. And, and even the word worship, it originally was worth-ship. It was a declaration of the worth uh, of a person or a God. And so when we talk about worshiping God, we are referring to recognizing the worth of God and in some way declaring that, making it known. And the way then that worship is connected with commitment is that if we have truly committed ourselves to God as we've, as we've been considering, 
we are so committing ourselves to God because of the worth or the value that we place on who God is and what he's done for us and showing us mercy and causing us. And that causes us to surrender our entire being to him so that he might be glorified. Do you get the, the relationship between commitment and, and worship? Between dedication and devotion? Now, there's a common misunderstanding that worship is something that only takes place on Sunday and that especially takes place when the congregation is singing. It's not uncommon to hear people talk to like, well, worship was great this morning. And they're not talking about the sermon. They're talking about the singing. So worship in many circles has just become a, a statement of, about singing to the Lord. But it's so much broader than that. Um, it's so much broader. What we do entirely on Sunday is worship. We worship together from our greeting one another as we see each other, from uh, our singing to our time of remembrance to giving attention to the word of God as it, as it is proclaimed, eating a meal together, people going into the kitchen and washing up all those pots and pans that have been used to, to cook the meal. That's worship. Picking up trash that you see on the floor. That's worship. Everything is worship, or it should be. That's, that's the point. Worship in the minds of some is, you know, just singing. But it's so much broader. And many think, many think that if they go to church on the Lord's Day, that they've fulfilled their obligation to worship for the week. But worship doesn't start or end at a church service, a church gathering. As this passage and the rest of the section shows, you're either worshiping God or you're not worshiping God all week long, all day long, depending on what you do with your body. You see, no matter where we are, what we are doing, whether it's at home or at work, recreating, if we're with family or friends, or with people in the community at some event, or we're, we're, what we're doing in all of those circumstances, either we're worshiping God or we're not. The word that is translated spiritual, your spiritual service, or as some translation, your reasonable service, is from the Greek word logikos. Logikos. Now, you, you, can, you, can, you can hear the English word that we get from that, right? Logical. Logikos. Logical. It's not the normal word translated spiritual. That comes out of the, the Greek word pneuma, or for Holy Spirit. Pneuma. Breath. So on. But this word is different. This is, uh, this is a word that would be better translated, in, in my estimation, as rational. Now, rational is not the same as reasonable. Now, our, our worship of God is logical. We should see it. There's a connection between um, the mercies of God, me devoting myself to God and worshiping him. That's logical to me. That's a reasonable thing to conclude. But this word means something more than that. This is the kind of worship that that Paul is describing, that it involves our minds, our minds, our intellect, and truth. It is rational service, and that is in contrast with mechanical or automatic or ritualistic worship. It's, it's worshipful service that is in contrast with ritual or dutiful service or worship. For example, you may find yourself at church only because you're expected to be there. You, know, you feel the pressure. I need to be there rather than I want to go and worship with the rest of the, the believers this morning. You may have your daily devotions, if you do, because it's a habit. It's a duty you know, you got to check off the box. Not because you are in any way attempting to declare God's worth. When you give thanks for a meal, what are you thinking? Or are you thinking? Thank you, Jesus, for this food. In your name, amen. You know, you, you may not even be thinking at all. You may just be giving out rote words instead of doing it because you want to... In, 
in a way, declare God's worth to you because you understand him as being so good to supply for your daily sustenance. When you give to support the Lord's work, do you do so because you've been taught that you should do that and you, you might pay a penalty if you don't? If you don't give your tithe, you know, God will get it some way. He might break a pipe in your house or something like that. Is that why you give? Or is it because you want to in some way show that the riches that God has given you in Christ should be responded to by giving him back just a portion of the material good things that he's given you because, hey, he is worth everything to you. Get the difference between rational and mechanical or automatic or ritualistic worship. And hopefully you can see from our discussion this morning that the subject of worship is absolutely tied to the subject of commitment. That our devotion to God is absolutely connected to our dedication to God. So here's the bottom line for me. It's on your insert. The measure of my commitment will be determined by the value or value of of worth or worth, value or worth, we place on who God is and what he has done for us. The measure of my commitment to God is connected to the value or worth that I place on who God is and what he's done for me. So the questions, several. What will it take for us to see God as of more value and worth than anything this world has to offer? What will motivate us to totally commit our entire beings to God as an act of worshipful service? Well, there are many things that motivate me to worship God with my life and my lips. But Paul says there's one thing that should more than anything else motivate you to do that. And that is the mercies of God. The mercies of God above all else is the one thing that should cause me to commit my life to him. And the fact that he has saved me and uh, from everlasting torment should stimulate within me worshipful service. And if God were to do nothing else, if he was not daily working out all things to my good, like he does, if he were not answering my prayers, as he does, if he were not providing all that I need for life and godliness, which he does, if he was not doing all of that, if he was doing nothing else but saving me from the consequence of my sin, that should still be enough for me to dedicate my life to him, be devoted to him. So what kind of value or worth do you place upon God? How meaningful to you is it that God has saved you, if he has, from eternal destruction? What is God's worth to you? What is his value to you? Is it everything? Does your life indicate that, that, that he is more worth than anything and everything else? And if we truly believe that God is more valuable than anything and everything else because of the mercy that he's shown us, uh, it should be pretty clear. It will be evidenced in the way that we live our lives in worshipful service. And that is what God is calling all of us who are his children through faith in Jesus Christ to do today, to make sure that we've committed our lives to him. And we're going to worship him as we walk through life, that we've dedicated our lives to him and that we'll be devoted to him for the rest of our lives. Amen. Have you responded to God that way? I hope that you have. And if you, if you don't know God, and it, you know, it's like, this is all kind of new to you, well, make sure you talk to one of us about how you get a right relationship with God. I've already mentioned it, as Paul has, it's through faith in Jesus Christ, but I'd love to talk more with anyone who would have any question about that. Well, Lord, we are thankful for this this one verse that we've looked at today, that considering this general principle that should govern our lives in the concrete situations that we find ourselves in. We pray that we will, will strongly evaluate our lives if we have ever, or if we are living up to 
the commitment that we made or need to make. That we will evaluate how much we worship you and are devoted to you. We speak to each one of us. Have your way for your glory and honor and for our good. And thankful, we're thankful, Father, for the food that we're going to eat on the other side now. And pray that as we eat that, there too, we'll bring you glory, for you are worthy. We ask this all in Christ's great name. Amen.